Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 76, Bloody April. Hello everyone, and welcome back. Last time, we left off with the ill-fated Naval Offensive, which began on April the 16th, 1917. Although Naval's debacle marked the end of the Allied push that spring, we are not finished with the NRS front quite yet. So we're going to stay where we are for today, but instead of focusing on the land war, we are going to crane our necks skyward and talk about an important development in the ongoing air war. The important development I am alluding to is, of course, Bloody April, which began on April the 2nd, 1917, and ended around April 29th. Bloody April was the single deadliest month for the aviators of Britain's Royal Flying Corps, and no discussion of the events that spring would be complete without it. But this will not be a day-by-day breakdown of the entire month. That would not make for engaging listening, I can assure you. So to hopefully do this somewhat correctly, we are going to dedicate our attention to events leading up to Bloody April, from the autumn of 1916 to the spring of 1917. We'll talk about what the Germans were up to during that time before flipping over to the British. This way, we can cover as much ground, or air, as possible. Cool? Cool. To begin, we need to back up to October 1916. As the Battle of the Somme wound to a close, Germany's military planners met to assess the damage sustained over the past year. As they pored over maps and after-action reports, it was concluded the Allies had once again gained control of the skies, thus exposing the German positions to sustained observation and devastating artillery strikes. Senior command was deeply worried, perhaps none more than Erich Ludendorff, who bleakly described the situation in the following words, quote, On the Somme, the enemy's powerful artillery, assisted by excellent aeroplane observation and fed with enormous supplies of ammunition, had kept down our fire and destroyed our defenses. The defense of our infantry had become so flabby that the massed attacks of the enemy always succeeded." The German army was deeply critical of its air services response. If Germany was to survive the defensive battles of 1917, the blade of the air service would have to be sharpened. A repeat of the underwhelming performance on the Somme would not be enough. To help ameliorate this issue, Ludendorff ordered the centralization of the air service in October 1916, placing it under the command of a general officer who had authority over frontline squadrons and anti-air defenses. The officer put in charge of this new operation was Ernst von Heppner, who had previously served as Second Army's chief of staff. Von Heppner had a difficult task before him. To centralize the air service, he had to address the lack of unity between squadrons. Unlike the armies and navies of the world, military aviation had not yet succumbed to the long arm of bureaucracy. This meant squadrons had their own unique policies, and pilots learned their craft through trial and error. Cracking through the shell of autonomy was not going to be easy. But to Ludendorff and von Heppner's credit, they did not try to dictate this change from the top down. If the Imperial Air Service was to remain an effective tool, it demanded an expert craftsman. Fortunately, the Germans possessed such a man, 25-year-old Oswald Bolka. Oswald Bolka is a man who requires little introduction. 
but if you're hearing his name for the first time, there are a few things we should be aware of. After Max Immelmann's death in June of 1916, Oswald Bolka became Germany's leading aerial tactician and premier ace. With 19 confirmed victories, he was perhaps the most gifted pilot on either side. His importance to Germany's war effort was such that Kaiser Wilhelm ordered him grounded just days after Immelmann's funeral. Unable to fly combat missions, Bolka served as an advisor for the German Air Service. He toured Turkish and Austro-Hungarian airfields in the Balkans before returning to Germany in early August. Upon his return, Bolka was ordered to transfer his wealth of knowledge to paper and compose a document which could be used to train future pilots. The document Bolka produced transformed military aviation and formally established the principles for successful air combat. That document was the Dick de Bolka, the first ever manual of fighter tactics. It stressed the importance of speed, teamwork, and using the glare of the sun to catch your opponent unaware. The dicta was not an extensive document. At face value, it was little more than eight axioms Bolka believed all combat pilots should adhere to. But the dicta's legacy cannot be understated. Although modern technology has outpaced some of its principles, it remains a foundational document. Modern air forces still train their pilots using manuals descended from the dicta. Within the context of the Great War, the dicta was quickly adopted as official curriculum in pilot schools throughout Germany. If you're interested, I've posted it to our website, thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. Following the dicta's publication, Bolka also oversaw the reorganization of Germany's fighter groups. Up to the summer of 1916, the Imperial Air Service did not possess specialized fighter units. Single-seat fighters were usually attached to general-purpose squadrons, where their main task was to escort slower reconnaissance and bomber aircraft. Bolka wanted to expand the number of dedicated fighter groups, thus providing the air service with the flexibility to combat the French and British. These new specialized fighter groups were known as Jagdstaffel, or hunting squadron. Each Jagdstaffel consisted of 6 to 12 single-seat fighters, and their main purpose was to counter the success of the Allied fighter groups operated by the RFC and French service. By the end of the year, there would be 33 Jagdstaffels in France, the first of which, Jagdstaffel II, became operational in early August, with Bolka as commanding officer. Jagdstaffel II consisted of pilots Bolka handpicked, which included a 24-year-old Manfred von Richthofen. By October 1916, Jagdstaffel II was one of the most efficient squadrons on the Western Front, scoring an impressive 26 victories that month. But it was not long before the stress of command had taken its toll. Launching a brand new fighter group was tough work. The stress, coupled with Bolka's already two years of service, had left the 25-year-old weary and exhausted. Sadly, Bolka was killed in a mid-air collision over Bapalm on October the 28th. Already a legend in the eyes of the public, few could accept his death was the result of an accident, and Germany was plunged into a deep state of mourning. To friend and foe alike, Bolka had been a courageous warrior, a gallant hero who embodied the knightly traditions of honor and chivalry. As a testament to his character, the RFC dropped a commemorative wreath containing the inscription, to the memory of Captain Bolka, our brave and chivalrous foe. 
So we are a few minutes into our conversation here, and we haven't gotten to 1917 yet. What gives? Oswald Bulka left behind an indelible legacy. Jagdstaffel II was immediately renamed in his honor, and the number of hunting squadrons proliferated over the winter, serving as incubators for Germany's top aces. Manfred and Luthar von Richthofen, Erwin Baum, Kurt Wolf, and Werner Voss were Bolka's disciples. Each had come up through the Jagdstaffel system, thus ensuring the Dicta's principles were passed to the next generation of German fighter pilot. Bolka's passing also marked a significant shift in how the air war was fought. Before 1917, the air war had not yet been consumed by the demands of industrial warfare. Opposing pilots maintained a sportsman respect for one another, often complimenting each other in letters or waving at the end of a pitched fight. Bolka was well known for this type of behavior. For example, he would have tea with wounded opponents recovering in hospital, and ensured their letters home got where they needed to be. But by the time of Bloody April, demands of the various armies, combined with the proliferation of faster and deadlier aircraft, gave way to a less humane approach. Combat pilots were forced to adopt a colder, more business-like ethos. Men like von Richthofen represented a new breed of fighter pilot, one which valued brutal efficiency over gestures of camaraderie. The air war would become a gloves-off contest by 1917 a contest that would pit the inexperienced pilots of the RFC against the now well-honed Jagdstaffels. Okay, that wraps things up from the German side of things. Now we'll flip over and discuss things from the British perspective. Britain's Royal Flying Corps, or RFC for short, faced similar problems as the Germans did upon the new year. It too had just lost one of its own premier aviators when squadron commander Lenoy Hawker was bested in a duel with von Richthofen in November. Although the RFC held numeric advantage in the air, senior command could not sit comfortably. Not only had the Somme consumed much of its resources, but losses of men and machine had crept up by the end of the year. Roughly 750 pilots and observers had been killed, wounded, or pulled from action between July and December. The man responsible for navigating the RFC through these challenges was Major General Hugh Trenchard. Born in Taunton in 1873, Hugh Trenchard had led the RFC since August 1915. He was an aggressive and hard-charging leader, who believed aircraft were best suited as offensive weapons. Under Trenchard, the RFC had three priorities. The first was to maintain close air support to the army by providing photo reconnaissance, artillery coordination, and low-level bombing. The second was to sustain an active presence over the German lines, as this would have a detrimental effect on enemy morale. The third priority was a simple one. Always, always, always maintain offensive action. In summary, Trenchard wanted as many machines in the sky as humanly possible. Now, if this sounds like I'm about to write Trenchard off as another intransigent general, don't worry, I'm not. There's some nuance we need to uncover first. Without a doubt, Trenchard's unwavering belief in the offensive resulted in disproportionate losses for the RFC. But he correctly identified the real value of air power was not reflected in the number of aces it produced 
or the number of enemy planes it destroyed. In fact, Trenchard was a devout critic of the fame and reputation bestowed on many of the aces, believing it overshadowed the true value of air power. For Trenchard, the value of air power could only be quantified by what was achieved on the ground. If the army was to make headway, it required information only air power could provide. Ground operations by 1917 had grown far more complex than those of 1914 and 1915, and even 1916 for that matter. They now demanded intricate knowledge of enemy trenches, supply networks, gun placements, communication hubs, and so forth. Information, which can only be supplied through the RFC's efforts. Trenchard understood this symbiotic relationship. He did not have the luxury of deciding where and when deployment was necessary, nor was he able to sit back and let the enemy come to him. He ensured close cooperation with the army, and did what he could to arrange that the men in the air were in sync with those on the ground. However, this did not make Trenchard some army liege man. He was a fierce proponent of air power, even where skepticism was abound. He got along well with Haig, and the two formed a close working relationship. In his year-end dispatch, Haig complimented the RFC, writing, quote, The Air Service has done and is doing invaluable work, and has secured practically complete mastery over the Germans, end quote. Fast forward to the spring of 1917, the RFC's complete mastery had begun to wobble. Although the British possessed twice the number of aircraft as the Germans, most of their hardware was outdated and in need of replacement. Pusher models like the FE-2 and Airco DH-2 still made up the bulk of its forward fleet. The Germans, on the other hand, had recently deployed their Albatross D-1 and D-3 fighters, which were superior to anything the British had on hand. The French were able to lend the British some of their improved Newports but it was not enough to make up for this discrepancy. The technological pendulum was back in Germany's favor. The RFC was in a tough spot. The obsolete pushers stood little chance in a duel with the Albatross. Unfortunately, the arrival of Britain's newest fighters, which included the SE-5, Bristol Fighter, and Sopwith Camel, were delayed stemming from production issues at home. With the attack on Vimy Ridge scheduled for April 9th, the War Office infirmed Trenchard he could not expect these aircraft arriving on time, meaning the RFC would have to begin the battle under-equipped. Obviously, this was of great concern to the General, who voiced his frustration in a letter to the Aeronautics Department, writing, quote, You are asking me to fight the battle this year with the same machines as I fought it last year we shall be hopelessly outclassed and something must be done. All I can say is there will be an outcry from all the pilots here if we do not have at least a few squadrons of these fast machines. And what I have asked for is absolutely necessary." End quote. The RFC faced two major problems that spring. An aging fleet on the one hand, and being forced into a battle it did not want on the other. Remember, the Battle of Arras was a supporting battle to Nivelle's main assault on the Aisne, meaning Trenchard was obligated to help whether he agreed with the plan or not. His hands were tied. There was nothing he could do until the SE-5s and Camels were available in greater numbers. Whatever his reservations, Trenchard did not let his men off the hook. 
Fully aware they were flying obsolete aircraft, he pushed his crews as hard as he could. The number of patrols and photo recon missions increased. Aviators were now flying multiple sorties per day, and the cold weather brought little reprieve. A month before the assault on Vimy, the RFC lost a staggering 143 machines, more than they had lost in all of 1915. To get a sense of what happened during Bloody April, we need to look at the numbers. When the Battle of Eris began on April 9th, the RFC had 365 aircraft taking part in the battle. The Germans had about 240. By the end of the month, the RFC listed 421 men either killed, wounded, or missing, along with the loss of 275 machines. Now, relative to the losses incurred by the army, these numbers may not appear that bad. But here's the kicker. This was more than the RFC had lost in the entirety of the Somme offensive, double the losses for a fraction of the time. RFC machines were being destroyed at a rate of 5 to 1 during the worst of it. Manfred von Richthofen, now firmly on his way to cementing his legacy as the Red Baron, claimed 22 victories in that single month, once shooting down four British planes on a single day. For contrast, the German Air Service counted just 68 machines lost. So then, the question should be asked, why were the losses so disproportionate? Well, a big part of the answer lies in that the RFC had the quantity of planes and pilots, but not the quality of planes and pilots. They did have excellent tacticians, like James McCudden, Edward Manock, Billy Bishop, and Albert Ball. We should also highlight the sacrifice of those who flew the cumbersome recon and bomber aircraft, in addition to the thousands of dedicated ground crew, staff, and other personnel. You know, the ones who don't get their pictures in the history books. The cold reality was skill alone was not enough to account for the golf in technology. German pilots were too skilled and pragmatic to let any Allied aircraft linger for too long. So, to address the issue, Trenchard maintained a strict no-empty-chairs policy. This meant replacement pilots were often rushed to squadrons without adequate training or experience. Many replacements would arrive within days of another pilot's demise. The result of this policy was entirely predictable. The new pilots did not last long. According to historian Peter Hart, their life expectancy was just 48 hours after their first combat mission. For his part, Trenchard was not oblivious to this, but his critics did become more vocal as the death toll increased, one of whom was Lieutenant Thomas McKenney Hughes from 1st Squadron, who described the general's approach in the following words, quote, Trenchard follows the good military principle of repeating any tactics that have not been actually disastrous, and often those that have, again and again, regardless of the fact that the enemy will probably think out some very good reply, until they really are so disastrous that they have to be abandoned." End quote. As ruthless as this policy was, it was not senseless bravado. As Peter Hart writes, it suited the psychology of the young men who made up the squadrons. By denying a true grieving process, pilots and observers would not be burdened by the fates of those who came before. Unlike the infantry, 
where replacements could be integrated in drafts, new pilots and observers had no choice but to go out on their own. At the end of the day, they had to climb into their machines and face the unknown. In other words, a more humane approach would not have worked. Control of the skies was never a guarantee, and the only way to protect it was to keep sending more machines into the sky. It is also worth noting that the men themselves had no illusions about what was at stake. Many had served in the trenches, and understood the attack would fail if the artillery could not do its job, which depended on what the RFC could provide. All they could do was lean on their numeric superiority until the storm broke. That storm would continue to rage for another four weeks, but a glimmer of hope did appear at the end of the month. The SC-5s and Bristols began to arrive in greater numbers, followed by the Sopwith Camels in June. It was a slow process and did not change the situation overnight, but as more squadrons were equipped, it gave the British the speed and maneuverability they had lacked since the start of the year. The fighters can now adequately protect the bombers and scouts, while also being a formidable opponent for the Albatross. The SE-5 and Sopwith Camel, for example, would become some of the most successful fighters of the war, and would see thousands built between 1917 and the Armistice. Historians typically date the end of Bloody April to April the 29th. As Nevelle's grand offensive along the end sputtered to a halt, Haig shut down the Eris operation and turned his attention to the Belgian coast. In all, Bloody April marked the zenith of the air war. Never again would air losses be so one-sided, and it was the last time the Germans possessed real air superiority for the remainder of the war. Many of the aces we mentioned earlier would meet their ends soon after Bloody April. Kurt Wolf, 23, and Werner Voss, 20, would be killed in September. Erwin Baum fell in November 1917 at 38 years of age. The RFC ace, Albert Ball, was killed in a crash in May of 1917. Like Werner Voss, Ball was only 20 years of age. With air superiority once again established, the British would pivot to Flanders. Meanwhile, France was faced with a national emergency at the end of the Nivelle Offensive. Fed up with how the war was being run, thousands of French soldiers declared mutiny. The French army mutinies of 1917 put France back on the defensive, rendering its army unfit for action in the summer of that year. Alright, that's a wrap for this episode. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can reach the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast or through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. That again is at Great War Podcast or thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This has been episode 76 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly. <laughs>